Hi, everyone. I know recently we announced we were going to two episodes a week and then three episodes a week. But you know what? There are just too many episodes. So we are going to back to five episodes a week. Still a reduction from seven, but there were just too many interviews scheduled, and I didn't want to make all the authors wait for too long. So I hope you can keep up with me. Listen to one a week as you're on your way to work or on your way home or putting your kids to bed or whatever it is you're doing. Moms don't have time to read books now five times a week. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hi, I'm Zibby Owens, and you're listening to the award-winning podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. If you like this podcast, you will love my new anthology called Moms Don't Have Time to Have Kids. Check it out, and you'll hear from 49 authors about all sorts of things moms don't have time to do. All the authors have been on this podcast. Also, check out my TikTok, at with Zibby and Tracy, my other podcast, Sex Talk with Zibby and Tracy. Check out Moms Don't Have Time to Write on Medium. And of course, my new publishing company called Zivi Books. And now back to our daily author interview site and a quick hello from some of my kids. Hi. Hi. Hello. Enjoy the show. If you like this podcast, you will love my new anthology called Moms Don't Have Time to Have Kids. Here's a little snippet by one of the authors from the anthology. My name is Jean Kwok, and I'm thrilled to have contributed to Moms Don't Have Time to Have Kids. My essay is called, Mama, Am I Pretty? And what I really don't have time for is putting on makeup. Savala Nolan Trapinski is the author of Don't Let It Get You Down, Essays on Race, Gender, and the Body. Savala is executive director of the Felton E. Henderson Center for Social Justice at the University of California, Berkeley School of Law. She is the author of Don't Let It Get You Down, and she and her writing have been featured in the New York Times Book Review, Harper's Magazine, Time, NPR, and more. Welcome, Savala. Thank you so much for coming on Moms Don't Time to Read Books to talk about Don't Let It Get You Down, essays on race, gender, and the body. Thank you, Zibi. I am totally excited to be here and can't wait to dig into the conversation with you. Oh, well, I just 
love the way you write. I love your point of view. I loved all these essays, I, how you link them together, the way you talk about your body, your identity, your your feet. I mean, honestly, it was so good. And I was just, it's just amazing when you read great essays like this. And I love essays. So I don't know. I just got very, very excited about it. So thank you. I mean, I love essays too. And these essays, you know, hopefully they kind of walk the line between personal and political, you know, they're very much obviously about me and my life, but they're also about things that we all deal with, like our bodies and race and class and gender. So I love that, you know, as different as you and I are in some ways, I love that the book spoke to you. That's any writer's dream is to have what they do matter, you know, even to people who come from different different places and different experiences. Well, I mean, we all come from the same emotional place deep down. Like that's what I think so much gets in the way, you know, I don't, I'm not self-conscious about my feet, for instance, but I have my things, right? Like we all have our (laughs) things that we are embarrassed about, about our bodies. We have the things we don't like. We have, you know, not feeling like we fit in and, you know, not sure about things and parts of our families that embarrass us. And I don't know, there's like so much that, you know, the outside trappings are one tiny piece, I feel like, that often take up a lot of the air in the room, whereas the stuff that's really important gets left behind. But Yes. But the stuff that's really important tends to be universal. I totally agree. Yes. Okay. So let's back up for a second. Okay. <laughs> when did you start writing this book? Why did you start writing this book? Did you always know it was going to be a book? Did you just start writing the essays? How did this whole thing come about? And how did you even start writing? Like, let's go there. Well, I've been writing, you know, forever. I'm one of those people that, you know, was writing little stories when I was eight years old on a computer after doing Mavis Beacon Teaches Typing, which is really going to date me (laughs) for any of your listeners. So, you know, there's a way in which I think I've been kind of working on using writing to understand how I fit into the world and understand how the different parts of the world fit into my own life since I was a really little kid. But you know, this project came together, I guess, over the course of about four years. Essays are a really intuitive form for me. So I always understood that, you know, if I published these pieces into a book, that it would take the form of kind of a memoir in essays. And, you know, I think this book is really my attempt to understand or reconcile or make peace with the fact that I don't really belong anywhere in our culture in a seamless way. And, you know, to kind of make use of the perspective that that dislocation affords me. I mean, you've read the book, so you know I'm someone who embodies a lot of contradictions. Like, I am Black and white. My father was Black and Mexican, and my mother is white. I'm descended from enslaved people on my dad's side and slaveholders on my mom's side. I happen to be raised in a place called Marin County, which, you know, at the time that I was growing up there had the highest per capita income of any place in the country. But within Marin County are pockets of more middle class and blue collar and poor people. And I was more in that pocket. So I had access to some of the benefits of being in this really wealthy place, including private schools. But on my dad's side of the family and and when I was with him and his side of the family, I was experiencing, you know, generational poverty that was really intractable and deep. 
And, you know, I'm also someone who has been fat and thin over and over pretty much my whole life because I was put on my first diet when I was about four years old. And as anyone who's dieted knows, you know, they don't tend to work long-term. So I've gone on and off diets, I don't know, until I stopped dieting altogether about five years ago. So I think, you know, being a woman and being someone who's so tethered to how I look in the culture, like having had kind of the quote unquote right kind of body and the wrong kind of body over the years has taught me things. So, you know, not belonging neatly into these major categories that are so definitional in our lives gives me a unique perspective. And I wanted to write about that and share it with other people. And also you know, selfishly see if maybe I could kind of map out a place for myself at last, you know, and this book is um, the result of that effort. And do you feel like you did that? Like, do you feel like you came to some sort of conclusion or that you feel more sort of, you know, at home? Like, did it work for you? (laughs) Uh, You know, I think in many ways it did work in the sense that, you know, I'm way less interested now in trying to fit into a neat category than I was when I began writing this book or than I've been for most of my life. I think we all desire kind of a seamless or easy belonging, you know, that's a very natural desire to just feel that you fit neatly and easily and organically with a, with a given group. So of course I still have that desire in a certain way, but I'm, I'm much happier and more at peace with just being someone who's in between and who's kind of, you know, on the balcony and the dance floor at the same time in so many different ways. And I don't have the same level of interest in, in trying to get rid of that aspect of myself that I used to have. So and that way, yeah, I would say I, I definitely got something that I wanted from the process of writing these 12 essays. So yeah. one thing that sort of not haunted me is the wrong word that I, I can't stop thinking about is your relationship with your mom and how it's changed over time and how you lauded the fact that she raised you with such, you know, all these Black culture influences, right? Everything from singing at the church choir to just making sure that you had that, even though your dad had left, and how important that was to her that you understood that part of your own identity, which I thought was awesome. But that as you got older, you started feeling like more of a separation from her until you had this one scene of her as like, like this, like frailer, older white woman and like this difference, you could feel the sort of space between you as you wrote about it. Tell me a little bit about your relationship and like where it stands and where it stands today. Well, I was, as you say, really lucky to be a mixed black person who was, you know, raised by a white person who understood that she was going to have to go out of her comfort zone, out of her way to um, connect me with Black culture, Black politics, Black aesthetics, you know, Black history, once my dad left our family and no longer lived in the house because, you know, I would have absorbed those things just probably automatically if he had been in my house all the time. You know, again, my dad was Black. But since he wasn't, and I saw him, you know, my mom was my primary caregiver. I saw my dad regularly, but there's no comparison to the person who's in the home raising you, right? 
So once my mom understood that I wasn't going to get those things, she just had the presence of thought to know that I, as a mixed Black person, was not going to be welcome in whiteness. And so it was incumbent upon her to make sure that I felt my connection to Blackness. And I'm, you know, I'm incredibly thankful for that. I honestly can't imagine my life if, if she hadn't done that from a young age. But it's true, you know, that as I became older, like any child goes through a process of individuating from their parents, you know. And when I was really young, I didn't understand us to be so different racially. And as I began to just become more my own person and the world racialized me more, you know, I became really aware of how, in a way, how deeply segregated our experiences of the world were going to be because we we didn't share a racial identity. And there were times when that has been really sad and times when it's made me angry, you know, and times when we've been able to become closer by having, you know, frank and loving and candid conversations about, about race, relying on the intimacy of our relationship to kind of get us through the more difficult moments. And my relationship with my mom is really, really good. I mean, at this point, it's really, really good, but it's, you know, it's been a complex road because her efforts were honest and purposeful and, not contrived, you know, they were genuine, but of course they were imperfect because she's not black. So she couldn't, you know, she couldn't translate everything perfectly to me. Um, And one of the things I write about in the book is sort of the difficulty of having to contend with her racial blind spots and like her unprocessed anti-black racism as a kid, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. And occasionally that pops up now too, but, you know, we can talk about it and because I'm not eight years old or something, I don't internalize it. Of course, you know, the other thing that, that I, that impacts my relationship with my mom so much is dieting. She was a chronic dieter. She learned that habit from her mother and she enrolled me in it, as I said earlier, in a really young age. So that's another part of our journey that's been very, very complicated and has a racial aspect of it too, you know? So yeah, I don't know if you want me to get into that. Well, let's, um, no, I was looking, I was looking for this quote, which of course I can't find now when I want it, but well, let's, there's so much I want to talk to you about. Well, here, I'll just read this passage that you wrote. I think that was in the same essay that we were talking about, but you said, it's hard to describe how the particular resignation of American blackness sometimes feels. It swallows sound. It's an impassive reflection in the mirror, so massive you must look away. It feels like stopping time and disappearing, sliding through that tiny rip you used to press your eye to years ago when you were little, but what you saw made no sense. Candle-lit ships bobbing on still Atlantic waters, the hedge of the new world green at the horizon, the smell of sex and menstrual fluid and pus from somewhere, and is that the sound of a violin? Oh my gosh. You're, I mean, you're like an amazing writer. That's like amazing writer. But anyway, when you talk also, and I don't want to only talk about race because I do want to go back to your body, which personally I'm like super interested in, but I mean, they, I'm interested in all of it. But the moment on the swing set where you were pushing 
the child, you know, the moment on the swing set when somebody assumed you lived in like this bad part of Marin County and you had this whole internal dialogue with the woman, like where you said all the things, like, why did you assume that just because of how I look, I lived in that particular neighborhood? Like, don't you realize that's racist? And all these like small slights along these little things that just keep like jabbing away at you. How do you resolve that and just sort of like move on? How do you like be like, okay, like I'm not going to yell at this woman. I'm going to just like, you know, tell me about that. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Well, yeah, I do remember that moment. And I still think about it, even though I wrote about it, you know, which which is a form of processing, but I still think about that moment a lot. And, you know, I had this internal reaction of kind of the you know, pot boiling over, but externally Mm -hmm. I was very calm and polite to her and just corrected her, you know, her wrong assumption about where I was from, but in a very polite, friendly way. So, you know, which is to say I shoved down what I actually felt and stifled it, which, you know, if you do that, (laughs) you either have to process it at some point or, you know, it goes rancid inside you. You know, you put things in the disappear box, they don't actually disappear. They just get moldy, you know? So, I mean, Zibby, your question of like, how do you process the thousand slights? That's the million dollar question, you know? Like, I think about it racially because that's where I, personally, that is where I sense them. And that is the way that they harm me most. But like, you know, any woman has had to sort of just politely respond to a dude who said something or did something, you know, because she doesn't want to risk seeming, you know, like she's out of control or she just wants to like get along or, you know, whatever. Like this is something that anyone who's, who has a marginalized part of their identity relates to. I think for me, you know, getting to write about it helps me externalize it, you know, like, cause in the moment you, you do so often have to just kind of take a breath and like, put it aside and decide you're not going to let it derail your day. And like, it's them, not you, all of that. 
but those, that pile of stuff, like it grows, you know, inside of us. And so I think for me, the, the, the straightest route to kind of letting it go is probably writing about it for me, because that's how I understand the world, you know? But I don't, I mean, if I could, if I could answer that question with like a one, two, three step, you know, thing, I could retire tomorrow. <laughs> I, I wish that I, I wish that I, I knew how to, how to not feel rocked by those moments because they're part of life and, you know, they're not going away, even as the world improves in many ways, like those little moments, I don't think are going away, not in my lifetime anyway. And let's go back to the body talk, if you don't mind. Um, And actually when I was reading this, I made a mental note. I was like, I need to like go and see if she had posted any pictures of what she used to look like. Cause you make all these references and I didn't even go back and check, but I'm wondering if, (laughs) cause I'm like, what is it like to have such, you know, like sometimes I post pictures of like a much smaller version of myself and I'm like, I'm like, you know, my before is now like what I would love to get to in my life. You know what I mean? So it's funny how that works. Yeah. I mean, I've had all kinds of bodies in terms of body size. I've been sort of like what you would consider in, in New York city, let's say to just be like a standard thin, you know, I've been painfully thin when I was really deep in subclinical eating disorder behavior and overexercise. I've been what you would call just like a little bit plus size. I've been really fat. You know, I've just, I've been all over more than once. And where do you feel the best? Like, why did you, and how did you decide to stop dieting five years ago? What does that mean? And like, where, where is your happy place? Yeah. Well, where I feel the best doesn't actually have much to do with the size and shape of my body. I mean, that's one thing because I was never thin enough. You know, when I was thin, my boobs weren't perky enough. Like, you know, it's just, it's always something like the goal line is always moving. And so I feel the best right now. I'm probably the fattest that I have been, I don't know, that I'm aware of just going by like dress size. Although I don't, I don't weigh myself anymore. So I can't say for sure, but just going by dress size. But I feel the best I have ever felt because I am not engaged in the project of perpetually renovating my body, you know, not really treating my body as a place that I was allowed to just linger in and enjoy and savor, but um, treating my body as a problem, as a mistake, as something that was just constantly out of control and I had to wrangle as something that scared me, as something that felt out of control. I mean, that's how I always felt about my body, regardless of how it looked, because dieting is not really about how you look, you know, to my way of thinking. Dieting is essentially a political sedative, I think. You know, there's a quote that I love from Naomi Wolf, where she says, a culture obsessed with female thinness is not obsessed with female beauty. It's obsessed with female obedience. Mm. And that captures quite a bit of how I feel. There's another quote by a scholar, Gilman Sander. I'm probably going to mess it up, but he's, he, the gist of it is that dieting is a way that women show that they understand their role in society. Mm. It's a way that they perform their gender. And, you know, as I became more politically aware of kind of the underbelly of diet culture, because it's not natural or organic, you know, there have been periods of time and there are places on the planet and cultures now that prize fat women, 
right? Like it's, it's not some natural law that women are supposed to be thin in order to be attractive. It's a cultural construct, you know, that kind of masquerades as something neutral. As I became more aware of the politics of dieting and the ways in this country that, you know, fear of fatness and the desire for thinness is very literally tied to anti-Black racism and chattel slavery, And you can see it in like women's magazines and entertainment, you know, from the antebellum era. As I became more aware of that, um, it fueled me to stop doing this to myself. And, you know, I only speak for myself. People are on their own journey, you know, and people can disagree with me. But for me, there's no question that the creative and spiritual and political freedom that I feel no longer dieting is worth more than I could ever possibly say. And I would never, ever, ever go back no matter, you know, what someone said my body would look like. Yeah. Plus there's the fact that diets don't work (laughs) for like most people, you know? So it's sort of like a cure that doesn't work for a problem that doesn't exist, I guess, is how I think of it in a nutshell. (laughs) Or several tagline for dieting. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. So what is coming next for you? You have this book out. Has it changed your life? What do you want to do next? Like, what are you excited about? I want to write another book next. You know, I mean, this was truly a dream come true. This was like a a, a childhood dream come true. And I will be writing until the day I die. You know, whether or not anybody reads it is a different question (laughs) and whether or not anybody publishes it is another question, but I'm thinking about what my next book will be about. And I am, you know, in conversation with a couple different sort of writerly platforms about writing more regularly for them. And I'm really hoping that I get to, I mean, I'm a lawyer and I work at a law school. And so that's kind of the other hat I wear, but I'm hoping that I can find ways to focus more on writing because it really, it's, it's my place of joy, you know, even though it's sometimes, as you know, really difficult (laughs) and vexing and it's a lot of work. It's the place where I feel kind of most alive and like I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing on the planet. So yeah, that's my goal to have more time and, and space to write. That's what I want. That does sound nice. (laughs) Does that sound nice? That sounds really nice. (laughs) Just wave a magic wand. <laughs> <laughs> sign me up. Sign me up. <laughs> exactly. exactly. Um, what advice would you have for aspiring authors? Oh, my. My advice for aspiring authors would be I can't take credit for this advice because it's advice that was, you know, has been given to me and that I rely on to focus on habits more than inspiration because inspiration is fickle and it like comes in and out with the tide and you can't rely on it. And habit is just much more of a workhorse. I think there's a quote from Madeline Langell who said, inspiration usually comes during work, not before it. Mm, that's great. And I love that. I love right? that. I so love like, that. Yep. Don't wait around for inspiration. Just keep chipping away because, you know, as you know, from writing, like you can't get to the good draft unless you go through the bad drafts. So you just, if you're unwilling to go through the bad drafts, you know, or you're not, you're unwilling to work when you're not inspired, then you, you literally can't get to the good stuff. You sort of have to walk through that hallway 
to get to the door at the end of it. So that that's my one little bit of advice is go for habit, not inspiration. I love that. And just one question, because I'm curious, the guys who you, yeah. the guys who you mentioned, particularly the one who like leaned over you at like a table, <laughs> do they, did they know, do they know about this book? Do they remember those moments? Like, have you heard from any of them? Oh, Zibby. So yeah, I wrote, I, there's an essay in the book called on dating white guys. While me, where I write about my, you know, former, but very strong desire to be chosen by a a white guy as a romantic partner because of the power of their approval in the culture, you know? And I do go through a number of guys that I had these, I don't even know what I would call them. I don't know, like an asexual romance. I, I, I don't know, like not a normal friendship, but not a full-blown romance either. And let's see, there is one of them, one of them knows for sure, but he hasn't gotten back to me about it. Oh dear. Another one, his best friend told me like, Hey, I saw your book in a bookstore. And I suppose that means that, you know, his best friend, who's the guy I write about knows but yeah, I mean, I have no idea. It's out in the world. Maybe they come across it. And if they remember things differently, that's okay. You know, it's that's the nature of life. In a way, the essay is less about their behavior, although I do think it was often strange, and more about my process, you know, trying to get over this very strange habit that I was in with these guys. But yeah, the guy who leaned over me, like, I don't, I don't know. I still don't know what to make of that. Right. I know. I was reading along with you. I'm like, what was he doing? You know, whatever. But we'll never know. I loved reading about it. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. The crazy little moments in life where you're like, what? Anyway. I know. We'll never know. Never know. Well, Savala, thank you so much. This has been so fun. The time went by in like two seconds. And again, thank you for these beautiful essays. I really admire your writing and the way you look at the world. And it's really cool. Great job. Thank you, Zibi. I so appreciate the chance to chat with you. And I just love your book world, your world of books, and I'm really thrilled to be a part of it. So thank you so much. Awesome. All right. Well, take care and I hope to talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to this episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens and at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Also sign up for my newsletter at ZibbyOwens.com and sign up for my virtual book club and meet lots of authors on Zoom every other week. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. 
market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.